listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Oh, it's good to be here. And I have some special guests with me today. Not only my wife and kids who are always with me, but... Rebecca, who is part of our family, and Rob and Kim and, and their kids, they're all from Cleveland, Tennessee, where my wife and I were living before we moved here. And they are, they're closer than friends, closer than family, really, whatever closer than family is, right? Because so we, we, these are people we choose to be family, right? So some of your family, you're just stuck with them. And then there's those people that you wish were family, and that's, that's who these people are. So thank you for being here today. So our text for the day, we're continuing this series on family traditions and our ties to the story of Israel and to the stories that are given to us in our Old Testament. And today is the story of Naaman. So what, what do we already know about the story of Naaman? It's, it's, a, it's a story that we all know to be somewhat funny because most of us will have known it from our youth, from Sunday school or VBS. And what do we know about the story of Naaman? Naaman's a leper. Yeah, what else? I know you know more than that. Yeah, and then there's a, there's a slave girl who says, you know, Naaman, I know how you can be healed. And how is, how is he healed? What happens that brings about his healing? Did you guys sing that little children's song about dipping in the, in the water? I thought about doing that this morning, leading it this morning, where you have to... You have to kind of imitate Naaman dipping seven times in the, in the river. But I decided that I'm a little too old for that kind of thing. And what if you didn't go along with me? That'd be really embarrassing if I were just up here. But by the end of the sermon, I, I might go back to that. So just be ready for singing a children's song. We'll see how the vibe, how the vibe is. But yeah, so Naaman, Naaman is generally considered to be a kind of cute story. And it's always odd to me the stories that we tell our kids in Sunday school and VBS as if they're cute. Like, the, the most obvious and atrocious one is the story of Noah. Like, I know kids who have their rooms decorated as Noah and the ark. You do realize that's the story of the extermination of the human race, right? <laughs> like, millions of people die. Like, the worst catastrophe in human history. And we're like decorating our kids' rooms with it. Naaman's story is, is funny, though. Unlike Noah. Noah. There's no humor in Noah's story. Don't, don't look for, there's nothing funny about Noah, nothing cute about Noah. But the Naaman story is funny, but it's black comedy. It's dark comedy. It's gallows humor. And when we hear the story, we hear it as kind of, again, cute Sunday school story. But it's, it's much more Coen Brothers than it is Veggie Tales. Like, it's not really a veggie, I mean, you can do it in VeggieTales style, but if you read the story, it's actually, it's actually dark comedy. It's, it's meant to, it's a spoof of power and powerful men in particular. Like, in this, in this story, powerful men, all the powerful men, except for Elijah, Elisha, kind of get sent up as absurd, as out, kind of out of their depth in terms of what God is doing in the world. The only people who come off looking good at all are women, slaves, and children. 
And essentially, you could say the story of Naaman is the story about how women, slaves, and children are the only ones who really know what's going on in the world. And that men, and especially powerful men, are the ones that are clueless. They're the ones who, who think they're in control, but really are not at all. And, and it's, again, really funny. And part of what drives the humor and makes it so dark is that it's driven by the story of a man who has leprosy. I mean, he's dying from a skin-eating disease. And somehow, in the way we've told this in Sunday school, that's cute. Naaman the leper went down, Naaman the leper went down. I mean, his, his body is rotting off of his bones. And we don't know exactly where the leprosy is. Now, in Sunday school, you always imagine, you know, he has leprosy like at the back of his hand or something. But we don't know where he's leprous. It could be all over his body. It could be in hidden places on his body. But he is eaten up with this disease. And he's a powerful man, but still at the mercy of this sickness. And only women, slaves, and children can save him from it. And a stubborn prophet. So what I want you to do is, as we engage this story today is I want you to, to hear it with some humor, but make sure it's dark humor, right? This is not Sunday school humor. This is, again, not VeggieTales. This is Coen Brothers. Like this is, you laugh, but you feel a little uncomfortable laughing, right? It's the, it's the story, there's a, there's a famous novel where it begins with the kid who is urinating out the window because there's someone in the bathroom and because he's rebellious, the curtains fall off while he's urinating out the window and circumcise him, right? So you laugh about that, but you don't feel good about laughing about that, right? Like most of you didn't laugh just now, right? You didn't feel good about laughing about it, right? That's what dark comedy does, right? And the purpose of dark comedy, different theorists have written about this, the purpose of dark comedy is shock. It's to take the way you've ordered the world, the way that you think the world is structured, and turn it around really quickly in a shocking way to make you rethink how the world works. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. So, no, no, no more prefacing. 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman. Naaman the leper. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man. Now, notice how the storyteller goes out of his way to talk, to kind of build Naaman up. So, if you can... Any of you love the Monty Python movies or know anything about Monty Python? Like, hear that kind of tone when the narrator is telling you about what kind of man Naaman is, right? So that you know right away this, this man Naaman is a buffoon. He thinks of it, he's inflated in his own sense of importance, but actually we know better. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now this is, this is a, a subtle detail, but notice... The women are not named, the girls are not named, and the prophet is not named, not yet. The only one who's been named is Naaman. But again, this is, this is reversal, this is dark comedy, this is gallows humor. And we're right away supposed to realize the people that really matter aren't being named, and the person who's really at the mercy of all the, 
events taking place is the one who's been named. And the little girl doesn't even remember Elisha's name. She just remembers that there's a prophet in Israel. And so she says to her mistress, Naaman's wife, you should tell your husband that he should find this prophet in Israel. This prophet can heal him. And so Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. Now notice the ways in which the powerful men handle the situation. There's a little girl who somehow sees that Naaman is leprous. Wherever his leprosy is, she sees it. And says, not to him, but to his wife, he should go and be healed. But of course, powerful men have to handle things as if it's a powerful event. Naaman doesn't just head off and look for the prophet. It's got to be an international event. Right? There has to be a parade, like with jets flying over and tanks in the street. Like it has to be an event. And sure enough, the king of Aram says, all right, since you're, you're the most powerful man in my kingdom, I will send a letter to the most powerful man in Israel, and we'll make this happen. And so he sends him the letter. So Naaman goes with the letter, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. I mean, essentially, he's just bringing a train of riches with him, right? As a show of the wealth of his kingdom and his own power, right? Again, this is drama. This is hyped up drama, the kind of drama that only powerful men could think would be necessary, right? And so he brings all of this wealth into Israel, and he brings the letter to the king of Israel, which read, this is the letter from the king of Aram to the king of Israel, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now here's our first laugh out loud moment. Because already the powerful men have mucked it up, right? No one said the king of Israel was going to cure Naaman of his leprosy. No, nobody said this. Nobody anticipated this. But by the time the word got from, you guys remember the telephone game? By the time the word gets to the king of Aram and he writes the letter, and then the letter gets to the king of Israel, what's being said is not there's a prophet in Israel who can heal, but the king of Israel will heal this captain, this general of the Aram, Aramean army. The letter says, cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, which seems a little dramatic. <laughs> Maybe tear the letter. Maybe not go straight for the clothes, but he, he did. Men in Israelite tradition were all about the clothes tearing and sackcloth and ashes, and, and he was just a little quick on the trigger here. So he tears his clothes and says, am I God? To give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So I don't know if you've ever seen the, the Coen Brothers movie, Burn After Reading. I don't recommend it, but it's hilarious in that what's taking place between these characters is actually just run-of-the-mill, ordinary misunderstanding. But because they happen to have important jobs... They think that it's an international conspiracy. Um, Brad Pitt plays a, a personal trainer who is mistaken for a spy, even though he has the IQ of a rock that's been cut in half. And the, the whole dramedy spins, and it is a dramedy. It's, it's framed as a drama, but it's all just absurd. 
And the whole story just spins around misunderstanding after misunderstanding after misunderstanding after misunderstanding. And that's what's taking place here. Again, the king has been told, you're going to cure him of his leprosy. And then he assumes, oh, this is meant to put me in a position where I will fail. And then he will come against me in war for having failed to cure his general. Again, as if it's an international event. And somehow, Elisha, the man of God, hears about this dramedy, this absurd exchange between the kings. He hears, and what I love is he heard that the king had torn his clothes, which again is a laugh-out-loud moment. So does that mean the king did a really poor job tearing his clothes? I mean, why did, why did that rumor reach him? Elisha, you would not believe what happened in the court today. The king goes to tear his clothes and he tore them a little too far and it got kind of awkward or he couldn't tear them and he's pulling and pulling and pulling and finally he had to have someone come over with a sword and kind of get it started so that he could tear the rest, <laughs> right? Whatever happened, it must have been hilarious because he can't even tear his clothes with, with dramatic effect, right? Again, think of the, the, the Monty Python movie. Imagine a king trying to tear his clothes and it not going well or going too well and then you've got this absurd scene. And Elisha hears about it. He says, send him to me. Gosh, i got to rescue kings all the time, right? And, and he has to do it again. Send him to me that he may know there is a God in Israel. And he sends a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Which, again, so perfect. I mean, he mocks the king, which you're not supposed to do to kings, but that's, that's what's cool about being a prophet. You can kind of do that. Why have you torn your coals? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots. Again, planes flying overhead, tanks in the street. He shows up at the prophet's house. I don't know what you pictured, but when I was a kid and I heard the Naaman story, I always pictured a brick house. And then I went to college and realized, you know, there weren't brick homes in the ancient Near East. So I don't, it's probably a tent. But let's just, for the sake of it, imagine a brick house with like a white picket fence. And the prophet's in there, and then the planes fly over, and the tanks pull up outside. And he calls for him to come out. And this is what happens instead. Elisha sent a messenger out to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times. Now think about this. This general one of the most powerful men in the world has come all the way to this little brick house on this little street with his planes and his tanks and his military personnel and all of his riches and his letter from the king and he's shown up outside this house and the prophet doesn't even come outside. He just sends a messenger out and I, I assume he sent his feeblest, most awkward messenger. You know, the socially awkward messenger who really probably shouldn't have the job in the first place. And sends him out to say, here's what you're going to do. Go down to the river and dip seven times. Now again, we're familiar with the story, so this, it doesn't seem as absurd to us, but think about what this means. Right? These are the most powerful men in the world, and the prophet won't even face them, and all he does say is go and dip in a river seven times. Not six, not eight, Seven times. And Naaman is not at all pleased, of course. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, now listen to this phrasing, I thought that for me he would surely come out 
For me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Obviously, Naaman had been watching Oral Roberts television programs. <laughs> and he's expecting this, right? He came expecting that, like, you know, put your hand on the screen, point of contact, agree with me. And then he gets, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And he says, I, I, I thought there would be something else. I thought this would be, for me, a performance that he would put on his best face for me. And cure the leprosy. And then he says, And are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. He's infuriated because powerful men cannot be asked to do anything that's not powerful. And he's infuriated with this prophet. And one of his servants, again unnamed, saves the day. But his servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, if he had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Now notice what's happened in this story is that we've cycled back to the beginning. The story began with a little girl who gives the word of healing. And now the man who was sick has become like a little boy who's been made clean. But he's only made clean when he's reduced from being the powerful man to being the little boy. The only way to heal Naaman of his leprosy is also to heal him of his power. Naaman, as long as he's a powerful man, will be a leprous man. But when he can become like the little child that started the story in the first place, he can be whole. All right, let me pray with you and then we'll, we'll jump in. God, thank you for this day. Thank you that you're with Pastor Robbie and what he's doing now, giving his paper and, and visiting gorgeous churches making all of us jealous. Keep him safe as he comes back. Thank you for bringing all of us here. Help us to hear your word to us this morning and let it be a word of life and a word of joy and a word of peace. And help us, God, to become like this little girl in the narrative. Even though we're in a strange land, we're ready to speak a word of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I, I, I think most of us, many of us at least, will have been raised in Christian traditions or around Christian traditions that assume we're at the end of the world. That, you know, Jesus may not come back today, but soon at least, right? We, it can't, we can't have too many more presidential cycle, election cycles. Like, Jesus is going to have to come back soon. We can't endure this much longer. But probably, probably, we don't know for sure. No one knows for sure. But very likely, we're at the beginning of history, not at the end of it. And just for the sake of argument, I think it's important sometimes to consider that, that, that what if the human race and the Christian faith is not toward the end of its life, but at the very beginning? Alexander Mann, who was a, a Russian priest, um, played a major role in 
the events around the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. But he, he, has, he had this teaching that Christianity was just beginning, that after 2,000 years, Christianity was just beginning to emerge from the ground. It was a seedling just beginning to emerge. And he would make this joke, and he would say, we're all Neanderthal Christians. Like, it, we haven't evolved yet. We don't know what we're going to be. Right now, we're just dragging one another around by the hair and eating raw meat and living in caves, Christianly speaking. Right? We, we haven't yet learned how to be Christian very well. And I think there's something really wise about what he's saying because he, he says that we, we've got all of these instincts that we've developed over millennia of development, evolutionary history and cultural history. We've developed all of these instincts that are almost impossible to sanctify. And there are base instincts, which are essentially the, your fight and flight mechanism, right? So the, some, some psychologists will refer to this as the reptile part of your brain, where when you get really scared, you have one of two options. You fight or you flee, right? And this is just the part of your brain that's so primitive, that's the language they use for it, that it's like you're no longer thinking rationally. You're just responding out of sheer panic, like the time when the world's largest tree frog fell on my wife's pillow at 6 a.m. in the morning. That was just pure reptile brain, right? Like she, there was no, she wasn't praying. She wasn't praying even in tongues. Like she was just screaming. And she was screaming because she was, she was threatened. It might as well have been a leopard or a rhinoceros. Like it didn't matter what it was. It was a threat. And it triggers all of these instincts that are so deeply embedded in us, right? And we all know what that's like when you get frightened, the ways in which your body just takes over. And you don't even mean to say or do the things you say and do, but you can't not do them because these instincts are so strong. And those are, are kind of low instincts, and those are survival instincts, that you do what you have to do to survive. And then we have cultural instincts that have also developed over long periods of time that are kind of high or elevated instincts. And these instincts are not about sheer survival, but about belonging. And we have instincts not to violate our place in the group. That it's not, we're not just sheer animals. We're not reptiles. We're developed beings. We're evolved. But we've evolved in communities. We've evolved in groups. And part of what is kind of tattooed onto us is this instinct not to violate that. And so I think there are, in this story of Naaman, we see five different kind of beliefs that have emerged from his instincts that I want to talk about, all of which run against the grain of what God wants to do. So the first, the first instinct that I think you see everywhere in this story and, and everywhere in Scripture is that our God is our God, not their God. And you notice how this plays out in this story, right? The ways in which Israel has a God, the Arameans have gods, and it's tribal. My God is my God and not your God. And my God works for me and not for you. He works for me and against you, but he doesn't work for you. And your God works for you, right? So there's this way in which in, in primitive Christianity, we still think about God as our God. I can remember 
I, I grew up in a really primitive holiness church. It was neither holy nor really a church, but that's what we called it, a holiness church. And I can remember being eight, nine, ten years old, and we were at the mall, and we'd eaten at this quote-unquote Mexican restaurant. It was neither Mexican nor a restaurant, really. <laughs> and I was, even then, something of a nerdy child, and I wanted to be in the adult conversations. And so I'm sitting with my dad and our pastor at the time. And my pastor looked around at this mall of you know, hundreds of people walking around. And he says, it's hard for me to believe that all of these people are going to go to hell when we're not. Which is a pretty dark thought for a 10-year-old. So I loved it. I thought it was perfect. I loved considering that. And my dad said, well, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not all going to hell. And the pastor said, looked really serious at my dad and said, I'm not ready to consider that. And got up and walked away from the table. Now, what's happening in that moment? Right? He has his sense that God is for him and God is against everybody else. And that's an obscene example, right, where it's a few of us and everybody else. But all of us have a little bit of that in us. Right? We might draw the line a little further out. Maybe the line includes more people than my pastor would have included. But if you draw the line anywhere, you're still excluding and including based on God being for you and against others. And part of what this Naaman story is about, right from the first blow, is that you don't know that God is your God because God is at work in the world with everybody. The first thing we're told about Naaman is that God had given him victory. Which God? My God gave him victory over me. You see how it scrambles all of those convictions that I know my God is always working for my good and God is working against you. No, the very first thing the Naaman story says is my God is working for and against both you and me for our good. God is against me for you. God is against you for me. God is for me and for you and against you and against me. God is working our good, but he's not my God or your God. He's our God or he's not God at all. And everybody gets included in that hour. Not just you and me in this room, not just Pentecostals, not just evangelicals, not just Christians. God is God of all people. Whether they know it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. God is God, not my God. God is God. And he's only my God if he's everyone's God. And this, but this is a primitive instinct. A primitive instinct is to say, I have a God on my side, a God who's more powerful than yours. The second instinct that you see in this story and, and everywhere else, including in our culture right now, is that the outsider is a threat. Now, speaking of the term, in terms of the development of the human species, this makes a lot of sense. Because living in this world, especially if you think about living in this world in the, in, in, under ancient or prehistorical conditions, there are a lot of threats. The weather is a threat. Animals are a threat. The scarcity of, of food is a threat. And then other people can be a threat, right? I mean, there, there's no doubt that there's a reason our bodies have come to believe that other people threaten us. And frankly, I'm an introvert. And I'm an introvert of the kind that assumes all people are threats when they get close to you and seem to want to talk. So I understand, like I'm sympathetic to this. But Jesus just won't let us think that way about outsiders. 
over and over and over and over and to the point of exhaustion, Jesus makes this point, which Scripture makes to the point of exhaustion, that the outsider and the insider are not who we think they are. That we really don't know who's inside and who's outside. Now think about it. If God is God of everybody, and everybody comes within the embrace of God, then there is no outside and inside. There's just what we call outside and inside. And so God's work in our life is constantly scrambling our understanding of what counts as outside and inside. So think about in this story, Naaman is an outsider, but God has made him great. The little Israelite girl is an insider, but she's living in the outside world. And now she's an insider because she has a relationship with Naaman's wife. And it's the fact that she's an insider in the outside world that enables her to speak the word of hope to this outsider to come back inside to where God is working in Israel so this outsider can be healed. And by the way, the story doesn't end comfortably if you're an inside-outside kind of person because Naaman is healed and then goes back to Aramea and worships idols and the prophet gives him carte blanche for it. I mean, Naaman says to him, I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to carry my master into the temple of Ramon. And even though I know God is the only true God, I, it's part of my duty. I have to go into those pagan temples. Now, if I'd been the prophet, I would have said, God brooks no compromises. Turn or burn. <laughs> right? God is not playing games. If you love God, then you reject idols. If you want idols, then you reject God. But what Elisha says instead is, okay, sure, no worries. Because God is constantly subverting what we think of as outside and inside. Who's an outsider? Who's an insider? What do those terms even mean when you're talking about a God of infinite love who's claimed all of us as his children? I mean, they're, they're, those terms don't mean anything anymore. The third one, and this is even harder to break, the third instinct or third belief that arises out of our instinct is that only the strong survive. Only the strong survive. Now, one of the things that's strange about this, I, again, the church I grew up in was fundamentalist and crazy in other ways, but they, they, they did not believe the theory of evolution. Let's just put it like that. They did not believe that there were dinosaurs. In fact, I was taught that wicked, demon-possessed people had planted fake dinosaur bones in the earth so that, I'm serious, so that we would be deceived into thinking that the earth was older than it, than it actually is. That's a serious conspiracy. I mean, it's kind of a cool idea, really. <laughs> I, like, I actually like that better than the history, but it's, you know, it is made up, this idea. But the point is, I'm losing myself here in thinking about dinosaurs and conspiracies. <laughs> Robbie's never going to let me speak again, whether he's here or not. <laughs> but the point is, even though we re said we rejected evolutionary theory, in our bones, we believed that the strong are the only ones who survive, that it, the fittest survive. And we didn't just believe that about the world at large. We believed that about spirituality. That only the ones who are really spiritually fit, only the spiritual ninjas survive. If you're not spiritually cross-training all the time and posting on social media about it, then you're not really walking in line with the spirit. Right? You know those CrossFit people, right, that are always posting, like, they have, like, negative percent body fat, like they're at negative 20% body fat, like it's not even possible, and they're posting it every day, right? <laughs> then I grew up around people, and you know people like this who are that way spiritually, 
They pray 26 hours a day. Jesus speaks to them morning, noon, and night, right? Jesus tells them whether or not to buy almond milk or 2%. Like, Jesus is in their life, like in their face all the time. Every dream they have, an angel visits them, right? Like, they, they have such blessing in their life that they're, they're just overflowing with spiritual riches. And what that, all of that nonsense arises from is the belief that if you're not strong spiritually, you won't survive. That it is survival of the fittest within the church. And that's why when it's time to sing praise and worship, if you don't have both of your hands up and your eyes closed and your head thrown back, I'm, I wonder if you even really love Jesus. Because when it's time to praise God, we praise God, folks. Do you even care about Jesus? Do you even love Jesus? I mean, if you were at a football game, you would be yelling and screaming and shouting, and here you are at church, you're just sitting there, you're not doing anything at all. You get the point, right? We feel like we have to be strong. We feel like we have to perform at this elite athletic level to be worthy of the name Christian. But I got, I got news for you. We're bad at being Christian. You are bad at being Christian. I am bad at being Christian. And I don't mean bad in that kind of like, occasionally I don't get it right way. I mean, we never get it right. Like even when we get it right, we get it wrong, right? Like even when we do the right thing, like for instance, you do, for me it's because I'm an introvert and just a terrible person generally. When I do something kind to someone I don't really want to be kind to, which is the right thing to do, immediately I rejoice like, man, look at me. Like, look what I did. Like, I, I was, didn't even want to do that, and I did it anyway. Well, guess what? I just messed it all up, right? Because that's not how it's supposed to work. And so we've got this way of believing deep, deep, deep in our bones that only the strong Christians survive. But there are two more instincts I want to talk about quickly, and I'll get out of the way. Even if the, all of those are kind of base instincts, all of those are kind of low instincts, but there are two high instincts that are harder to see and they're harder to confront. And one is closely related to the issue of strength, and that is that our effort makes all the difference. Now, we would all say we believe in salvation by grace. We would all say that it's only by God's grace. But what we really believe in our bones is that our, our effort makes the difference. That if I don't try my hardest... I won't get what's best. And if I do try my hardest, then God owes me what's best. And if you don't think we believe this, or if you don't think you believe this, then give your best effort at something, and when it fails, see what comes out of your mouth. Because what's going to come out of your mouth is anger and resentment and bitterness and confusion. That's what comes out of my mouth. Or when you see other people fail, and you know they weren't trying. Listen to what you say. Well, of course they failed. They weren't trying. They came to church one time last summer. I never saw them giving the offering. And when praise and worship time came around, they lifted one hand. That's how I knew. I knew then that this was not ser serious for them, right? One hand. Like, it's a slippery slope, folks. If it's not both hands in the air, one hand, no hands, sit down, you're gone. So we, we get this idea that it's about trying hard. And notice in the story of Naaman, when Naaman gets so angry, what does the servant say to him? If he had asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. 
Because there's something about our Neanderthal spiritual nature that thinks if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do the hard thing because that's what God cares about. No, not really. Like you're, you're trying to think about you're going to search out that girl in fifth grade that you made a bad comment about. You're going to find her on Facebook. But then you're hateful to your waiter. Okay, maybe don't worry about finding the person in fifth grade that you offended. Be nice to the person right in front of you. Be kind to the person right in front of you. We're, we're, we're trying to, we're making effort the measure of something that's not the measure of. And then lastly, the last instinct that I want to talk about is that we have to protect our reputation at all costs. Naaman cannot allow the prophet to do this to him, send him down to the river to wash, because Naaman is important. I pointed it out to you while we were reading. I thought that for me, he would come out and wave his hand over the spot and heal me. Because the most ungodly instinct we have is to preserve our good name. The most ungodly instinct we have is to preserve our good name. If you doubt me, think about what God does when he comes among us. When God takes on flesh, what does he do? He makes himself of no reputation. What Jesus never had at any time in his life was a good name. His family thought he was crazy. His disciples knew he was crazy. And his enemies thought he was evil. But nobody thought Jesus was just a nice guy. Nobody thought Jesus was a good guy. Nobody thought Jesus was just good old country folk. Nobody thought about him that way. Because when God lives in this world, it isn't about reputation. It's about not having a reputation. Because if you're going to live in this world and you're worried about your reputation, you will never touch the leper. You will never let the woman touch your feet. You will never talk to the woman at the well. You will never encounter Gentiles and bless them. You will never heal the centurion's son. If you're worried about your reputation, you will never do what God is doing because all you are interested in is staying good with those people that you consider insiders with you. But the kingdom of God says there are no insiders and outsiders. God is the God of everyone. It's not about the strong. God is with the weak. In weakness, his grace is perfected, not in strength. And it's not about your effort, but about his work in you. Not about how hard I try or don't try. It's about the grace of God operative in my life. Yes, we have to work out our own salvation, but we work out our own salvation only because, Paul says, God is at work in you. It's not my effort that's making the difference. It's the Holy Spirit alive in me. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the achievement of the spiritual one that matters. The Spirit is giving life. The Spirit is doing the work. And I'm open to that and yielding to that, trying to be the site and location of that. But it's not my effort that matters. And I can only yield to all of that work of the Spirit if I don't care about my reputation. If I'm not trying to keep my status with some in-group. And this is why God sends Naaman servants, slaves, little girls. Because he's making it clear to Naaman, if you want healing, and I want healing for you, 
then you've got to give up your understanding of power and strength. So I leave you with this, and we're going to come to the Lord's table in just a moment. All of us are looking for healing, uh, healing of different kinds, and not all healing is going to come to all of us in this life, for sure. But I think there are some kinds of healing that will come when we stop trying to guard our reputations. We stop thinking about ourselves in terms of how much effort we're putting forth. And we just relax into the absurdity of the grace of God. We just dip in the Jordan. One of the things that Naaman says is, I could have washed in the Damascus rivers. They're clean at least. They don't have bio waste like Jordan does. But this is, this is what I want to leave you with. God will only wash you in dirty rivers. And what I mean by that is the only kind of contact God is going to have with you in your life is with people who are polluted. They're humans. Like this sermon right now is a dirty river. And some of you are standing on the shore like, I'm not getting in that. But this is all you get. Not just from me, not just from Pastor Robbie or Pastor Mikhail or anyone else. God does his work collaborating with human beings, and human beings are dirty rivers. We're not like the rivers in Damascus. Even the saints aren't saints. We're just people. And if everybody knew everything about you, you'd be alone in this room right now. And if everybody knew everything about me, I'd be alone in this room right now. But here's the glory of the call of God. We stay in this room together knowing that if we knew everything, we couldn't do it. Yeah, man, we are dirty rivers, folks. All of us. You are, I am, everybody. But that's what God uses to bring about his purity in the world. It's, it's astounding to me. There's a scene where Moses is told not to strike the rock. But to, Moses is told to speak to the rock. And instead he strikes it. You remember this? He strikes the rock. But water comes out anyway. Water comes out anyway. Because God is not looking for people who will do it perfectly so that he can do what he wants to do. And God is not looking for perfect people to do it perfectly. God just wants you and me to be who we are, to be the dirty river, and let him use and work with us and collaborate with us in bringing about healing for other people. I don't know why we're shocked, but we're always shocked when we find out how human people really are. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. And the fact that we're shocked at that humanity shows that we're not in touch with our own humanity. You know, there was a story about Mother Teresa. When she, when she died, they found a lot of her diaries, and there were all of these entries, entries after entries for years and years and years of serious doubt and anger accusations, feeling that God had abandoned her. And a lot of people were really shocked, including Christopher Hitchens, an uh, atheist who wrote an explosive op-ed in which he said she was a fake all along. Like, she presented herself as if she were a saint, but inside she was eaten up with all of these doubts. And he didn't understand the first thing about what it means to be a person of faith, because all of us are eaten up with doubts. And if you're not eaten up with doubts, it's because you haven't, you're not awake yet. You're not paying attention. Mother Teresa was a saint precisely because she was in touch with her humanity. 
She knew better than to deceive herself into thinking her effort was going to make the difference or that her reputation was going to make the difference. She knew she was at the mercy of God and she was glad to be, even though it was painful. God, I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters here today. I'm thankful that you, you put us in this room together. We don't all know each other very well. Some of us know one another, know others better than, than those around us, but the point is you know us all and you want us here and you want us here together. So God, I pray first that we will be humble enough to step in the water and be healed. If there is some way in which our healing is waiting on us to just be humble enough to receive it, God, help us to receive it. Let us listen to the word of that servant. It doesn't have to be difficult. Just do what has been asked of you. God, I want that healing. I don't want people to feel pressure to do more or try harder. Just the opposite. I want us all, Lord, to feel the invitation to healing. That not some great thing doesn't have to be done. We can just relax into your absurdity, into the craziness of grace and the craziness of your love. And God, even more than that, I pray that as we remember our baptism today, as we put that water on our heads and our hands, as we take your, your body and blood, that we will go out from here and be dirty rivers, be the Jordan, where people can wash and be clean. Not because we have any kind of magical power in ourselves, not because we're particularly clean or cleansing rivers, but just we're because the, we're your rivers. That's the river of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you make our baptismal renewal fresh today and make this bread and this wine your body and blood for us. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.